Today's episode is a little different. We just had an enormous midterm election, and I know this is something people say all the time, but I really think it's true, so I'm just going to say it. The stakes in this one are extremely high. So I wanted to talk about what the hell is happening and what it might mean. Lots of shows are pouring over the polls and the individual races, but I'm more interested in the broader state of our politics. And like a lot of you, I'm trying to process an election that didn't go the way people thought it would. Almost everyone expected the Democrats to take a big hit last week. And there were plenty of reasons to believe that, like high inflation and an unpopular president. But that's not what happened. Instead, Democrats did shockingly well, in spite of some very rough headwinds. How did that happen? And what did everyone miss? I'm Sean Elliott, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is James Carville. He's a longtime Democratic strategist, and I'm pretty sure you know who he is. As we said in the campaign world, the hay's in the barn now. Once the hay's in the barn, your job is over. Carville's a campaign strategist, and so he's always thinking about how to win elections. And he has lots of thoughts about why Democrats have struggled in recent years. His biggest gripe is that Democrats keep screwing up their messaging. He says they're too caught up in identity politics, and this hurts them in crucial races. But obviously, the Dems held their own this time around. So I wanted to get his thoughts about why, since he's been such a vocal critic of their approach. In the end, I'm not sure anyone really understands what just happened, but hopefully this is a decent start. We recorded this last Wednesday, the day after the polls closed, and so we didn't have all the results. But we knew quite a bit. All right, James, I got to say, I'm a little shocked by what happened last night. We expected a, a red wave of some sort, and I don't know what that was exactly that happened last night, but it sure as hell wasn't that. What's your reaction today? Well, I mean, I will say I was surprised and pleasantly, but we did have contraindicators. We saw this Harvard poll was talking about youth enthusiasm was very high. We knew that the early vote was going to have a really high turnout. And when you have that, almost by definition, you have to have a lot of younger people voting and probably a lot of non-white people voting because there's more slack. I mean, old guys like me, old white guys, they'll vote anyway. So they can't really jack the turnout up that much. And this is the third cycle in a row where we've had huge turnout. And the other thing that was a contraindicator that in retrospect, the prognostication industry paid attention to is the generic ballot tests over the last 10 days, if anything, got a tick better for Democrats. If you were going into a big wave year, you would expect deterioration kind of across the board in, in your polling. And, you know, the polling was actually pretty damn accurate here. I mean, every Senate race was 48-48, and all of them are ending up in that range. The congressional ballot tests all had it really kind of 50-50-ish and probably going to end up pretty close to that range. I think the big turnout helped us. I really do. 
well, you know, <laughs> I glanced at Twitter last night, which is always a terrible mistake. Right. Half the people were saying, well, the polls, they nailed it. They nailed it. And then the other half is screaming how wrong they were. I don't know. I'm confused. Well, I mean, you, you can look. The polls said it was a razor-tight election. That's what the generic polling said. And it was a razor-tight election. I mean, I, yeah, how accurate can you be? I don't know. But if I look at the polling averages, they were in the ballpark. And you shouldn't look at Twitter, Sean. That, that's bad for you. Hey, look, I'm, I'm trying to quit. One thing's for damn sure. The media narrative that emerged that this was going to be a complete bloodbath. Who, boy, was that wrong? And I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. It's so much a bigger story than we think. Because the narrative is, well, the president's approval is 40. The wrong track number is 75. This is the first year after a president's been elected, which historically has been utterly disastrous. The Democrats did not do that well in 2020. And there was this sense that this was going to be one of these, you know, where we're going to lose Colorado and Washington State and New Hampshire and everything else. So it really is a shocking event that this election turned out like it did. It was really, really huge. Do you think the Dems did well in spite of Biden? Certainly not because of him, right? I, I, you know, I don't think Biden was a big factor in this election. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. I mean, he ended the election campaign in Maryland in some 80% Democratic district. I mean, I, I like Biden, don't get me wrong. But I think what Republicans would tell you is Trump was a much bigger factor in this election than Biden. And, and not for the good. I mean, it was almost like, whew, when nobody thought about Biden. And Trump just kept shoehorning his way in, shoehorning his way in, shoehorning his way in. And it was to the detriment of the Republicans. The most central person in this election, easy, was Donald Trump. If you're a Republican strategist today, what the hell are you thinking? Is that the lesson from this? Ooh, it, it, you know this because you've been up here and you've covered this. There's an entire Republican infrastructure, lobbyists, K Street people, PR firms, et cetera, et cetera. They were ready to have a banner 2023, 2024. Right. Their financial projections are being reevaluated now, let's just say that. Is Trump damaged goods? I mean, most of these Trumpy candidates across the country had a really bad night. And I think that was surprising for a lot of people, myself included. Well, this is one of the controversial things that happened in the campaign that I was 100% in favor of. And I would say that the high-end commentariat was 100% against. I think Josh Shapiro is the candidate of the cycle. And just so people know, Shapiro was running for governor. Of Pennsylvania, right. He helped Mastriano win that Republican primary. All right. He wasn't scared to get his hands dirty. Then Shapiro says, yeah, you want to talk about crime? Let's talk about crime. You want to talk about high cost of living? Let's talk about high cost of living. He ran a, a really aggressive campaign the whole way through. And there's a lot of reasons we can do, too, why Oz lost. But in this modern environment, I think Shapiro got like 55.7. You're going to get the Senate candidate over 50 at that number. And I think Shapiro has got a lot to do with Fetterman beating Oz. So same thing in Western Michigan, same thing in Arizona. It turned out that the Democratic strategy of promoting election deniers as general election candidates was actually a good strategy. You know, obviously, Ron DeSantis won really big in Florida. And I suspect the temptation will be to think that it's 
you know, his party now. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the GOP establishment wants that to be true, but that doesn't make it so. I mean, do you think that's maybe a little premature? Well, you know, it was impressive. And sometimes you just got to say, that was impressive. Well, but you know who's going to be a big name just as DeSantis is? Brian Kemp. A lot of the Republican establishment doesn't like DeSantis. Brian Kemp is that kind of guy. He's going to be a, a name that's going to be in the mix here, more than you think. And, you know, DeSantis, he's out there for a long time. Not everybody's going to wish him well. Wait, why doesn't the Republican establishment like DeSantis? Why would they prefer Brian Kemp, who just won the governor's race for Georgia? Kemp is just more that kind of guy. DeSantis is not a personable man at all. He's a very smart, obviously. And some of them really like him. Some of them think he's, you know, he's too Trumpy. But I mean, the, the Mitch McConnell types, they would much rather work with a Brian Kemp than a Ron DeSantis, I promise you. And there are any number of people that will. DeSantis is way maggot. And I think I don't think Kemp could beat DeSantis in a primary, but he's going to be a player in national politics in the next two years. Do you think so? I mean, is that common knowledge that he has national aspirations? Everybody around every politician is thinking of the national scene. Okay. <laughs> if you're a governor, you say, well, you know what? Let me take a look at this thing. Yes, sure, of course they are. And I'm, I'm telling you, I hear his name in Republican circles. I'm kind of surprised by how much his name comes up. I want to get into this discussion about messaging and, and what worked and what didn't. And I just, I'm going to start with the elephant in the room for Democrats, which for a while now has been working class voters. They've been losing them for years now, and not just white working class voters. They've also been losing black and Hispanic working class voters. Now, I thought that was going to be a big part of the story last night, if the Dems got shellacked. But that's not what happened. And I'm not sure what to think now, to be honest. What do you make of it? Well, first of all, Rio Grande Valley was encouraged. The whole Rio Grande Valley, people thought it was going red and everything else. I think the Republican messaging kind of scared them, and it wasn't on things that they care about. And I think the Democrats, since the, the silliness of 2020, have like pulled back somewhat. And so they're not hearing this academic garbage, this Latinx, defund the police or whatever, by the foolishness that people came up with, I think it receded a, a little bit and it wasn't in people's face. But I mean, clearly what happened is, you know, they care about abortion like other people and they have other issues. And I think their mega messaging turned them off at some point. We've spoken a bunch over the years and your big complaint every time was always that the Democrats were screwing up their messaging. Right. That they were alienating working class voters. Does anything that happened last night make you rethink any of that? Was there some kind of pivot here that maybe we just underappreciated in real time? Well, I think we still have profound problems with working class voters of, of every stripe. Okay. I remember we did a little better with Hispanics than we thought we'd do. We certainly have a chance with white working class voters. And we probably did a little better with black working class voters than some people thought we might. But that's going to take a long look. And the coastal-centered messaging of the party is just, I don't think, is that smart. You know, we, we went into an election, and if you think about this, they 20 times more people in this country believe that the Democrats wanted to defund the police, which is demonstratively untrue, than believe that the Republicans would shut the government down to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare, which is demonstrably true. All right. 
and I, I think a little history is worth going into here. Because Rick Scott floated a plan that said they would sunset Social Security and Medicare and uh, have an income tax on low-income people. And Ron Johnson spoke favorably of it. I think Ted Budd did. In the Washington Post, which basically editorially exists to try to talk people into cutting Social Security and Medicare, ran a fact-check thing and said, oh, that's not fair. You can't say that. So we don't say that they're going to do this, in spite of the fact that Reagan called Medicare Social Security in the 60s that he tried to cut it. You know, Tip O'Neill had to stop him. Newt Gingrich tried to do it. Clinton was president. We had to stop him. Bush tried to cut Social Security and Medicare. And just in order to make the Washington Post look like a fool, Kevin McCarthy says three weeks before the election, if we get in power, we're going to shut the government down to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare. I, if I were the grand message, Papu, I would have ran with that all summer. I'd have told the Washington Post where to stick it, all right? Because that's why they exist to convince people that you have to rein in these runaway entitlements. So you got somebody on a fixed income, you know, you got inflation. Democrats say you need COLAs to keep up, and the Washington Post and Kevin McCarthy wants to shut the government down to cut your Social Security and Medicare. Makes no sense to me. If Democrats are looking for a model candidate that they can replicate in the future, should they look at John Fetterman? James Carville and I will discuss after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Well, Fetterman is such a fascinating example here. I mean, this is a guy who he went to every corner of the state of Pennsylvania, even the Trumpiest corners, you know, he... <laughs> He's this tall dude with a shaved head. He wore a hoodie, but he explicitly appealed to working class voters. He was mocking his opponent, Dr. Oz, as this rich, out of touch outsider. I mean, he seems like your kind of guy. And I don't know if he's a one of one or do you think he is an example or a model that Dems can and should replicate elsewhere? Well, all right. So he does. He comes across as very earthy guy. You know, he's big. He has those kind of cargo pants. He has a kind of brand. Yep. As I was going through the Pennsylvania numbers, I know the state quite well, a place like Bradford County, he, he ran a little head of back. 
But I do think that Shapiro was a big factor in, in Fetterman's win because he just won by so much. And I don't think I've ever met Fetterman, but he's a little bit like, you know, Bernie Sanders, for whatever ideological differences I may have had with Bernie Sanders, he just he is not culturally arrogant at all. He doesn't give off, neither does Fetterman, and that's good. That's the last thing we need is somebody using coastal code words. So I kept hearing the argument, and you had suggested a piece to me in The Atlantic the other day that reinforced this. And the argument is that Democrats over-prioritize issues like abortion rights or gun control and threats to democracy, and that these are concerns that tend to skew toward socially liberal, college-educated voters, and that working-class voters just care about different stuff. You know, They care about the economy, inflation, crime. And I do think that Democrats are too influenced by the highly educated managerial class, but I don't know what to make of that broader argument about messaging in light of what actually happened. Okay. Help me out here. All right. The article that you read was by a guy named Rui Tashira. Yeah. One of the better analysts. He's a very seasoned. He's been around a long time. He studies this. And l- let's talk about the abortion issue. You know who the only national Democrat to go to Kansas and campaign for the vote no part of the referendum? Mm. Me. Okay. <laughs> And they had me come back to talk to the Kansas Democrats. By the way, thank you, Governor Laura Kelly. She won re-election. Yep. But they very seldom used the word abortion. They talked about freedom and, you know, people doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And what I suggested, it was not taken up. You know, the Republicans told you that they would ban a woman's right to determine her own health. You didn't believe them. They did. Now the Republicans are telling you that they want to cut Social Security and Medicare you better believe them because they will. Right. So if you go to a working class voter, you know, and say, look, you saw what they did, all right? And this is what they say they're going to do. You better pay sufficient attention to them. So you could have, with some smarter messaging, we could have leveraged the abortion thing to say, and boom, take it one step further, other than just like mentioning abortion every third word, which is probably not the best thing for working class voters. Can you give me an example of where the abortion messaging went wrong? Well, I don't know that it went wrong because we probably got a high youth turnout. Right. And we probably got a, you know, let's wait and see, but we might have got a skewedly high female turnout, which, you know, you know know for sure, but suspect abortion stuff had a lot to do with. So it clearly was a player in people's mind as they voted. I just think we had an opportunity to leverage it into something much larger. A lot of people were pissed off, man. People voted accordingly. They sure did. They voted against bans in Kentucky and Montana and and Kansas. Right. I mean, it seems like that was going to happen no matter what, because people were pissed off. Right. But I think we need to take that argument to the next level. It's extreme. All right? They do extreme things. They don't listen to people. And wait till you see the other extreme things that they have that they do it. You see what I'm saying? You say this, but you parlay it into something bigger. And I think that's what we need to do all across America. You were telling me the other day that crime was going to be a big problem for Democrats, and I thought it was too. And maybe it was. But were we wrong about that, or did we overestimate the salience of that issue? I don't think so. By the way, Josh Shapiro ran hard with crime. What was Shapiro's pitch on crime? How did he spend that? That he knew about it, that he was attorney general, that he was a crime fighter's attorney general, and he's going to be a crime fighter's governor. It's not that hard. Yeah. 
in, we had any number of opportunities to speak to crime. Actually, the Democratic record on crime is, is quite extraordinary. The only time that crime went up in this country after the crime bill was the last year of the Trump administration, where you had huge spikes. Eight of the 10 states with the highest crime rates have Republican governors. Republican cities like Bakersfield, Jacksonville, they have exponentially higher murder rates than, say, a Democratic city like San Francisco. I mean, we just seeded, we seeded the message. And then Stan Greenberg did a poll and said, well, we can't talk about it because we're so far behind on it. By the way, according to the Pew poll, which is in Princeton, so you know, how could it be wrong if it's in Princeton, 81% of blacks say that violent crime is a major issue. And so we have coastal elites telling us, don't pay attention, pay attention to us. No. I mean, it's just a failure of us to engage. Plus, it's a real issue to people. Right, 81% of black families are worried about this, and they're our voting base. And the idea that we say we can't talk about it is arrogant and is disrespecting our, our voter base. See, but that's the thing. They did talk about right? Like, for, okay, first off, the party in power is just going to take a hit on this kind of thing, probably no matter what. But I feel like in the main, Democrats did follow your advice. I mean, I, I didn't hear any prominent Dems, for example, talking about open borders or defunding the police. Hell, Biden wants to fund the police more. He said it. So in terms of the messaging, what did they do wrong exactly? Okay. First of all, I think that as a result, I'll take some credit for it. I think as a result of some things we did, I think the identity left has realized that they need to just move back a little bit. So you just didn't hear that much from them because people just don't like them. They're not popular people. But I will give them credit they were quieter than normal, and I think it helped us a lot. But you're right, Biden wants more police funded. That's one of the more popular things that you can be for. But we didn't talk about it as a party, and we weren't repetitive enough on it. A third of voters said inflation was their top concern, and seven out of 10 of those people voted Republican. Like, I definitely get part of that, but help me understand why Americans don't seem to be giving Biden any credit at all for any of his economic policies, right? Like, I know the economy is shaky, and I know inflation is political poison, but the administration did do quite a bit, like the pandemic response package or prescription drug prices, the infrastructure package, and so on. Like, these are popular with lots of people. They benefited working class people. And look, I'm not the biggest Biden fan, and I get the frustrations with him, but there is a disconnect between his actual record and the public perception, right? Well, okay, let's start here. First of all, I, I think about his remarkable things. I think he made the case that most successful two years being president. By the way, he did avoid, the Democrats did avoid a historic loss and broke even in a race that there would be no expectation any such thing would happen, yep. and which is historically a really rare, rare event. So there's something to this. You know, people in their own way, because of inflation and also because of declining asset prices, they don't feel like the economy is that good. And when Biden says we have, the economy is in great shape, it says to people, well, he doesn't understand what my life is. So that's not to argue. But the one big macro message we should have had, I hate to be a one-trick pony, but when you think about the economy, do you think people on Social Security need cuts in their monthly payments, or you think they need payments to keep up with the cost of living. And that doesn't just affect elderly people. There's a lot of children that have parents that are dealing with inflation and dealing with this that need that. So we had golden opportunities, I think, 
to put this front and center. And the press goes and do a poll. Somebody says, what's the most important issue? And 37 say inflation and 21 say abortion. And they go, aha. Well, you can't really tell me much of the difference with what the Republicans want to do about inflation and the Democrats. The distinction that they have on abortion is very real, and people know what it is. You know, you're in South Louisiana, South Mississippi. How big an issue you think the humidity in the summer is? Well, it's damn uncomfortable down here. But you can't run on it because there's no issue distinction here. It's the same thing. We had opportunities, I think. And to Biden's credit, he did talk about cuts to Social Security and Medicare. But the Democrats, we get too distracted too easily. I mean, the secret to political communications, and this I'm pretty sure of, is you got to be so repetitive it's sickening. That you got to be so repetitive that the candidates are screaming, I can't say this anymore. That's always been the case, and it's always been the Democrats' case. I can't tell you the number of times when they said, well, no, Biden already said that. I said that in a speech in June. You don't remember? Actually, I don't. Neither does anybody else. The only way that the public hears something is that when we're sick of hearing it. Well, what is it then? Is it some kind of failure of top-down leadership? Because look, President Obama was out on the stump screaming that Republicans— don't have a plan to fix any of these economic issues. That if they do have a plan, it's the, they're going to shut down the government and they're going to go after your social security. So even if voters were understandably pissed off about this or that part of the economy, they were voting without any understanding of the consequences. But Dems were screaming about those consequences. So I don't know if it's a messaging problem or was there not just uniformity in that message or what? Because at least at the top, Dems were screaming about that. They weren't quiet about these things. It's part of democratic culture, and it was always a thing that you have multiple issues in America, and sexism is a problem, and racism is a problem, and you've got to solve these inherent inequities that we have in American life, which is there a lot of sexism and racism in the United States. Well, yeah, there is a, a whole bunch. And when a candidate says, well, there are multi-layered problems that we face with that are almost intractable, that you're not going to hold anybody's attention. And like simple issues like raising the minimum wage, man, that really, really, really helps people. It helps our supposed base a lot. But everybody in a Democratic Party wants to be the smartest person in the meeting and come up with the most clever ideas about this or that, where they just should just drive this, this stuff home relentlessly. You talk about it in a crisper, more meaningful and repetitive way. Well, again, it can almost sound at times like the Dems just got clobbered, but they didn't. They must have did something right. Well, no, but the Republicans had bad messaging. They also had bad candidates. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking they nominated a bunch of like cuckoo for Cocoa Puff election denying QAnon lunatics. Does Trump never let them get away from themselves? He just smothered them. I mean, he made the whole thing about himself, which if you think about it, is kind of what the Democrats need. Biden wasn't what they were thinking about. Trump kept putting himself front and center. And so in order for the Democrats to have a good election, the electorate had to go in thinking Trump, not Biden. And that's exactly what Trump accomplished. He put himself in the middle of this. So do you think this was more about how tainted and toxic Trump was than it was about anything that Democrats did affirmatively? Yes. Yes. How do we know that? I mean, can I give you a formula? Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. 2X minus... Uh, <laughs> when a party does as well as the Democrats did in relative to the expected environment, there generally has to be a macro reason. And the most logical macro reason is Trump was front and center of everything. And if people didn't like it, remember, he got 46% in 16. He got 47 in 20. 
The Republicans suffered historic losses in 18. He's polarizing and not overly popular. And he sits himself in the middle of everything all the time. And it hurt him. Every Republican knows why they didn't do well. I'm going to say this and you're going to hate it. All right. (laughs) I think we want to believe for really good reasons that doing and saying popular stuff is a good and reliable political strategy. But it is not clear to me that it is. We have a model of politics that assumes some kind of sound relationship between cause and effect, between policy and outcome, between what we say and what is heard. And maybe that was true at some point. I don't know about that. But in this media environment, I don't know that it is. I mean, So what we should do is talk about unpopular things? No, I'm not. There's no downside to doing that. I'm simply, it's not clear to me how helpful it is or how impactful it is. Well, telling people that you're going to do something, and particularly something that's popular, is going to help you to some extent. Look, there's 43% of the country that's just in the throes of craziness. Then you can't move that. But sure you can. Absolutely. You know, going into 2024, good sound messaging can help. And the good news is, To win an election now, you don't need to get major shifts. I mean, margins are so narrow, small shifts mean a lot. For me, it's always been when it comes to this messaging thing, it is not what Democrats say. It's what people hear. There's this huge difference in the way Republicans and Democrats communicate. And I'm not just talking about the language or the rhetoric, that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the tools and the infrastructure they use. You know, Republicans have spent billions of dollars over the course of decades building this vast narrative-enforcing media machine. And it's not just Fox. It's the whole right-wing universe that also includes websites like Breitbart and Daily Caller and talk radio. They dominate on platforms like Facebook. So they're able to scramble the Democratic message, or they create a buffer so that the Democratic message is never actually heard. And the Democrats don't have a media machine like that on their side. They just don't. We could talk about why that is, but they don't. And that seems like a massive structural comparative disadvantage for Democrats. I actually agree with you pretty profoundly. And the reason is we don't use repetition and we don't sufficiently use emotion. I mean, if they would have had the 10-year-old girl in Ohio that had to go to Indiana If that was a converse on Fox, they would talk about every night for two months. There's this idea that once you've said something, you've dealt with it. So I'll tell you a story about repetition. Early in my career, I was doing a guy in Kentucky who was very wealthy. He had a helicopter, and I had index cards. And he'd throw the cards at me, and I said, I can't say this shit anymore. You understand? I got to say something different. Everywhere I go, you have me saying the same goddamn pick up the cards and serve, we're moving here. People resist that kind of mindless repetition, but that's the only way that you break through. But what good is the repetition if the people aren't hearing it, right? They're getting their information from sources that don't. You don't know, Sean. My point is, if they hear the Republican repetition, because Democrats are not repetitive. So how can you say they don't hear the repetition? We're insufficiently repetitive. No, I'm saying my point is that the Republicans have this insular, self-contained machine that exists to reinforce and repeat that message, right? It's like, it's not that Dems can't win in this landscape. They do and they have, but the deck is stacked against them, right? They're facing a negative messaging machine that spins an optimized alternative picture of reality at scale. And the Dems don't have anything like that. That's what I'm saying. 
So, Ari, you're talking about something that I think about a lot. First of all, we have no enforcement mechanism. Right. There should be somebody, if I were Biden, I would have a person that was in every meeting and somebody said something on Vox and you'd call them and say, you know, you said that wasn't helpful. The White House called and you put people out and you flood the zone. Steve Bannon said, what you do is you flood the zone with shit. Well, we don't need to flood it with shit because it would better stuff than that. But they know how to flood the zone. We don't. We don't give people talking points that they need. We don't place people in the right places. We don't place pieces where we need to do it. We don't connive and we don't conspire. You got to conspire to get a message out. Somebody's got to be calling you and you have a podcast, pitching a story to you, pitching this angle to you. That's what you have to do. You got to promote things and push these stories and do it in a creative way. And we just traditionally have not been very good at it. See, I don't get it. Why? I mean, Fetterman was pretty good at that. He was damn good at that. But again, he seems like an outlier here. I don't get it. If it's so simple, why isn't it already being done? You can't be the only one who sees this. It's when I teach these campaign classes, you say, oh, that's as easy as falling off a log. Good. Get on a goddamn log and fall off of it. It's actually hard. You actually can't do it. And the democratic mind, the concept of simplicity, well, that's just too simple. We like to mull on things too much. Now, I've said it a bunch over the years. The Democrats are out here trying to win arguments, and the Republicans are out here just trying to win, baby. That's it. Right? I've won 68% of the arguments I've been in in 54 of the elections. That's the wrong ratio. They don't care. Screw the argument. Win the election. You know, you've actually been involved in campaigns, and I haven't, so you, know, you would know better than me. But for me, the game is about issue salience, right? And who can dictate it? People fixate on whatever issues are hot or ascended at any given moment, and they take their cues very often from the media they consume. And if those issues are immigration or race, then it's probably not going to go well for Dems. If people are worried about health care or Social Security, that's probably much better for Dems. But again, if you can't dictate salience, you're screwed. If the Republicans are able to do that, if the Republicans are able to define you because they're better at managing the media environment, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Yeah, it's a problem. It was a problem. It is a problem. It will continue to be a problem. You know, you go in a Democratic meeting. So you say, well, we have to listen to the opinion of everybody. Well, somebody 24 year old has an opinion. This person has an opinion. Not everybody's opinion is worth the same. And when I was teaching at Tulane and LSU, they'd call you in and say, James, you got to understand it's different than when you were in college. The student is now viewed as a consumer. Fuck that. They're students. They're not consumers of anything. They don't know as much as I do. I don't respect their opinions, to be honest with you. I didn't know more Civil War history than T. Harry Williams did. I was under no illusion that I did. I was just happy to be in there and absorb his lessons. But now, every 23-year-old has a nameplate and wants to be part of the decision-making hierarchy. Well, no. If you're 25 years old and you work on a campaign that I was running, you don't even have a name. Come here. Go get this. Do that. I want to go on ratemyprofessor.com and look at your reviews like, as soon as we hang up. Right. Coming up after one last quick break. The GOP's superpower continues to be its massively funded media machine. So why aren't the Democrats following suit?
I know you know Dan Pfeiffer, right? He used to work in the Obama administration. Yeah. And I've interviewed him before, and he was making the case to me, and I, I couldn't agree with it anymore, that the only long-term solution for the left, for Democrats, is to build up its own media and messaging operation, one that's truly a counterpart to what the right has done. But his complaint, and I share it, is that the Democratic establishment doesn't seem to recognize the urgency of this. Like They don't have their millionaires or their billionaires investing in this in the way billionaires and millionaires on the right have. Do you see it differently? And if not, why the hell aren't they doing this? Well, I don't see it differently. I think Dan is right. And again, it goes back to, unsatisfying as it may be, it's democratic culture. It's the nature that, well, we got to include everybody and we have multi-level problems and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he's right. And there's some democratic organizations, by way of disclosure, I'm affiliated with, like American Bridge, and we just do our own thing. We did a project in 2020 with 77 rural counties in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and we improved informants by like five points. But we're not a hierarchical party. We need to be more vertical and less horizontal. But the nature of a Democratic is to be horizontal. Yeah, and I don't see a, a real solution. There are lots of reasons for that. Well, yeah. Democratic Party, by its nature, is more coalitional. There are more groups involved, and you have to appeal to more people. The Republican Party is more monolithic by its nature for lots of reasons, and that makes it easier. Yeah, and that's not because of personality code, honestly. And yes, we're all part of a coalition. And we have to continue evaluating our coalition and some of our coalition partners do. But when you're part of a coalition, the nature of it is to be slightly uncomfortable. Because the Democratic Party, you're very correctly hit on the central feature of the Democratic Party. It is a coalition. And when you're in a coalition, you have responsibility to other coalition members. The Georgia race between Walker and Warnock is going to go to a runoff. But it might be the linchpin. And how comfortable you feel about that, if that's what it comes down to? Well, but matter if I feel comfortable or not, it's coming down to it. <laughs> now, they've changed a lot. It's four weeks, not eight weeks. So the Georgia runoff would be. December 6th. So you think that's better for Democrats than doing it in two months? I don't know. Apparently, they thought it mattered because the legislature did it. So they only did it for one reason. They thought it helped Republicans. But I racked my brain to see how it matters that much. I mean, I think you got all enthusiasm that people are showing up and you just can keep playing through. What do you think is the biggest lesson Democrats should draw from this election? Or is it just way too soon to even begin to answer that? I think it's way too soon. And I'm really interested in who voted and what that says. And it just sometimes it takes time to mull on things and extrapolate certain things. But we can certainly make a lot of assumptions here. Number one, as long as Trump is front and center, we're in the game. All right. That's the main lesson. And he's going to be front and center because he's going to be indicted maybe twice. And DeSantis has driven him crazy. So he's sitting there thinking every way that he can to put himself front and center. And I'm more than happy to hold his coat. I'm serious. He's the reason that they didn't do well. I mean, he, he just lost in 2020. Right. And a lot of his candidates lost last night. It just blows my mind that he hasn't been able to shake the stench of loserdom. But apparently, apparently he can't. And he can't stop the spotlight, so leave him out there and keep calling the loser. I'll say this. What concerned me before last night, and I say this not as a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, but just as someone who 
gives a shit about liberal democracy is that I really think Republicans have crossed some red lines here, you know, denying election results, talking openly about one party rule, the fact that they use the court to strip reproductive rights from women, something they always wanted to do, but I assume always worried at least a little bit about the electoral consequences, that they've done these things. And it appears that they've paid a political price for it. That's encouraging, man. I mean, maybe democracy does actually have a constituency after all. And I wasn't so sure about that 48 hours ago. And that seems reason for optimism. Good. Now, you make me more optimistic. It's been a tough six years, okay? And there are some reasons that people should feel good about this midterm. I mean, they really are. You know, every election, we all say the same thing. This is the most historic, this is the most important election. Look, I know I've said this all the time, but I'm saying this cycle, this is the most important election in American history. The fate of democracy lies in it. We stand on the precipice. We can do no other. We have to choose death or prosperity. Which side are you on? Oh, can I take prosperity? Having said that, I can't imagine a more consequential election in 2024 in that Louisiana way we're thinking about the next meal when we're eating the current meal. Uh But it's going to be an explosive political year, to say the least. So there's going to be a lot for Sean Hilling to do coming for the next two years, I promise you. What's James Carville going to do for the next few years? I mean, you're still all up in it, man. What's your plan? Uh, You know, I'm, I'm not young anymore. Just don't have the steam that I used to have. I'm sure I'll stay involved at some level, but we got to find somebody under 75 to run this country, and we probably need somebody under 75 to be commentating on things, but I'll stick around a little while longer. Biden in 2024, do you think Democrats should seriously consider running someone else? Do you think he should step aside for the good of the party? I think that Biden is justifiably popular among Democrats. I think people feel like him. They feel he's entitled to. I think that's a decision that he's going to have to factor in and he's going to have to make himself. He's older than I am. I don't know how I feel. And if you're looking at being president when you're 85, that's a big look. But I think the best thing he can do is digest what happened, talk to his family and his staff. And he'll have to make a decision. But I mean, if Democrats like him a lot, they feel like he's been mistreated of which he has they feel like he's accomplished unbelievable things and you know you talk about what roosevelt did or even clinton or obama they had huge majorities coming in biden had no majority so the result was just unbelievable but i do think that the generational churn in a lot of different places is going to be necessary for the future momentum of the party hell i'm 40 man and just doing a podcast is exhausting Right. You know, if I have a speech in California, I have to go out the day before. I just, I can't do that anymore. The jet lag, and it's too much. And you present every word you say, every person that you encounter has got to be pitch perfect. Yeah. So I, I don't know, but I'm telling you, age is a bitch. On that note, <laughs> it's always fun to tangle with you, my friend. James Carville, thanks for coming in today and go Tigers. I knew we'd have a lot to say. Thank you, Sean. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. 
We don't normally do on-the-nose election content. But like I said, this is a big election. So what did you think? Do you think Carville is right? Do you think he's missing something? I'm still pretty convinced that the messaging deficit on the Democratic side is a real problem, and a problem for which they don't have a solution. And I didn't hear one in this conversation. But maybe you did. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, leave a review, tweet about it, post on Insta, whatever you do. It all matters, and we really appreciate it. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.